Uh, you, may, you may like your job, but yours isn't nearly as good as mine. I have the best job in the whole world. What a treat to be able to focus on this journey into the presence of God in pursuit of a knowledge of his character and to connect with him so your life can be transformed. And I'm studying God's word, and I get to do it with all of you. I mean, how, how incredible is that? I get almost a little sad when we get to the end of the series, like today's the, the last week of The Stranger, but my sadness is uh, quickly comforted by my enthusiasm for the next series, and so I'll be okay. <laughs> I wanted to uh, begin this last message of The Stranger series by telling you of a, a morning, defining morning, back when I was in high school. I was eating breakfast in the kitchen of our home. Uh, I loved Frosted Flakes, so odds are, I don't remember, but I was probably eating Frosted Flakes. But I was miserable, absolutely sick to my stomach. And my mom, who could spot those things, pulled up a chair next to me, and she said, what's up? And I said, Mom, I'm, I'm just feeling terrible. She goes, what, what's bugging you? I said, this is bugging me, and I pointed to my T-shirt. Now I need to back up and tell you why my T-shirt was bugging me so much on this particular morning. Uh, I, I was a good church kid, and our youth group was doing a study on evangelism. Do, do you know that term? That term did not sit well with me as a young man. Evangelism is the privilege of being God's agent and helping somebody else come to Christ, helping somebody discover the life they were made for. It's a beautiful thing, but I didn't see it as a beautiful thing at the time. I saw it as kind of like forcing your religion on somebody else. I saw it as kind of a, a sales pitch where you try to lure somebody in and get them on your side. And oh, I, I just couldn't stand it. And here's what happened. This youth pastor was preaching, we must be evangelists. You are called to be God's evangelist. And then he announced, what we're going to do in application of this study is we're going to hold an evangelistic crusade. He said, I've hired an evangelist who's going to come and have a big event at one of our high schools. And I'm thinking, oh dear Lord, I pray it's not mine. I pray it's not mine. And he announces, it's going to be at Buffalo Grove High School, which is my high school. And I'm like, no, this is terrible. You need to understand, at that time in my life, I was a very efficient, undercover Christian. I went out of my way to prevent anybody at my high school from knowing my faith affiliation. I just kept it on the lowdown. And this was going to ruin everything, I could tell. And he said, yeah, he goes, it's going to be on a Friday night, and everybody's got, particularly all of you at Buffalo Grove High School, you have got to invite everybody to this evangelistic crusade. And then he pulled out the T-shirts. He says, on the Friday of the event, I want every one of you Buffalo Grove students to be wearing this T-shirt, which says, come to the evangelistic event, and it said, ask me about it. And I'm thinking, I don't, I don't want to wear the shirt. No, 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 no. 
And he poured, this youth pastor was good at guilt, man. He poured on the guilt, you know. He said, you better not be ashamed of your Savior. And the guilt was so heavy on me that on said morning, I put it on. And so I told my mom that story as I pointed to the t-shirt. And I expected my mom, you know, a solid Christian woman, to just add more guilt and say, yeah, he's right. You better stand up, you know. My mom, I'll never forget, she said, take the shirt off. And I said, Mom, what are you talking about? I said, I will be in so much trouble with my youth pastor. She goes, if you don't take the shirt off, you'll be in so much trouble with your mother. And I'm like, really? And my mom spoke prophetically in this moment. And she said, Jeff, there will come a day when you are so in love with Jesus Christ that you will want to tell others about him. She said, I love you, son, but you're not there yet. And until you are, take the shirt off. And I I remember at the time thinking, that day's never coming. There's no way I'm ever going to feel compelled to be an evangelist. Well, my mom was right. In those days of my early Christian journey, I was going through the motions. I wasn't convinced in my own heart that Jesus was that great or worth sharing with anybody. But that was the change. (laughs) And in the years that followed, I gradually fell hopelessly in love with this Christ. And he met me and changed me and brought me a joy and a confidence, a peace and a purpose that I never knew existed. He became my obsession, my, my passion. And sure enough, mom was right. Suddenly this thing called evangelism, which was so distasteful, became for me one of my greatest joys and privileges in life. Some, some may say, why, why did we do this series called The Stranger? You know, the, the whole series has been a pursuit of understanding who this Jesus is. And there have been some who have gently expressed some frustration that the series wasn't more practical. You know, some, some of you like practical, application-oriented series where every week there's six steps to do. And the truth was, this was a pursuit of a glimpse of the heart of Christ, which may not seem real practical to you, but I'm here to tell you, the more we understand who Jesus is, the more we fall in love with him, the more our lives are transformed and the more enthusiastic we are about representing him to this world that needs him so so well. So in my life, I see that this glimpse of the glory of Almighty God as revealed through Christ has changed everything for me. Let's just review the series, shall we? Jesus arrived at Capernaum, a stranger, unknown to these people, but he made this town on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. He made it his home base for his three years of public ministry. He did more miracles, more teaching, more stuff there than any other town. And as a result, the people of this town watched Jesus interact with various citizens of their town. And in those interactions, the true identity, the true nature of Christ became evident to them and to us. And in the process, he is no longer a stranger. He has increasingly become the love of our lives. Remember week one, we we discovered through the encounter with the fishermen that Jesus was no mere man. He is God in human flesh, holy, but also gracious. 
And then in week two, we looked at uh, the outcast. Remember that woman who had the chronic bleeding condition that led to her being despised and rejected by everybody? She expected the same from Jesus, but in Christ, she found a love, a compassion for her that she never dreamed possible. A love from another world is what we find in the eyes of Jesus Christ. And then we looked at the officer. Remember the military officer from Capernaum? He looked at Jesus and he says, I'm telling you, I know authority. I am in the military. I know how authority works. And you, Jesus Christ, are a man of supreme, ultimate authority of a whole other realm. And he was right. And so if we want to know this Jesus, we got to know him as king of kings and submit our lives to his authority and say what the centurion said. Jesus, just say the word and I'll do it. No pushback, no argument. I'm following you. Well, then last week we looked at a message called the mother-in-law. Remember that? Peter's mother-in-law. Where in this encounter, Jesus demonstrated for us a peace of life that is so beautiful. He is the prince of peace. Jesus embodies peace. Jesus brings peace. We don't see Jesus frantic, do we? Last week we realized that he's busy. He Carpe diem represents his style of living. He is engaged passionately in activity that advances the kingdom of God. But he also, not only carpe diem, also vacare deo, vacation with God. Jesus had this beautiful balance of engagement and withdrawal. And we discovered that Jesus went off to a solitary place early in the morning, left everybody behind, even though they wanted him to be busy, And he spent time alone with the Father in prayer. And we desire that same balance of engagement and withdrawal so our soul can be healthy and filled with the peace Christ exemplified. And that brings us to this last week. This last week is called the tax collector. And uh, we're going to be studying out of Luke 5. And so if you brought your Bible, open up there. I would encourage you to grab the Bible in front of you and the chair in front of you. You'll find Luke 5 on page 786. 786. So I'm reading verse 27. It says, As Jesus left the town. And what town is that? That's Capernaum. And so as he's leaving town, this encounter is going to occur on the outskirts of of town where the tax collectors commonly would set up their little collection station. As Jesus left town, he saw a tax collector named Levi. His name is also Matthew, just so you know. Levi is Matthew, and Matthew is one of the future disciples of Jesus and the author of the Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. He saw a tax collector named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Folks, this verse is absolutely shocking. And you, you say, I don't, I don't see it yet. Well, well let me tell you uh, the shocking nature. First of all, we need to talk about what is a tax collector and what is the significance of a tax collector in that ancient world? Well, let me explain. So 
you know, we're not real fond of the IRS today, so let's not act like this is an entirely strange concept to us, all right? But this was kind of like the fusion of the mafia and the IRS coming together when you look at Levi. You see, uh, the world of Israel was being, had been conquered. They, there was an occupying enemy that was ruling them. That enemy is called the Roman Empire. And the Romans had squashed everybody. And to tax all of their conquered people, they employed a very interesting strategy. They had a job opening. They said, who would like to be the tax collector? And they turned to the conquered people, longing for some of them to work for the Roman Empire and tax their own brothers and sisters. And so the first thing that made this so appalling was that you were teaming up with the enemy, the despised foe who has abused us. You're going to team up with them? And for the sake of money, Levi said, forget you all. I'll do it. I'll take the job. Here's how it worked. The Roman Empire would look at an area, its population, its wealth base, and they would calculate an amount of money that a tax collector needed to submit, gather and submit to the Holy Roman Empire. And when uh, that money was collected, the tax collector would keep on collecting above that amount because anything above that amount they could keep for their own profit. That's how it worked. And so what ended up happening is pure extortion. These tax collectors were known for just ruthlessly squeezing every dime out of their own people. Why? Because they got filthy rich in the process. Gave the Roman Empire what was expected, kept the rest for themselves. You can see why people hated them. In every way, these people were the epitome of compromise, self-centeredness, and wealth at the expense of their supposed brothers and sisters. And so people despised tax collectors above all else. They were viewed as the most corrupt, godless, disgusting human beings on the planet. So, the most disgusting human beings on the planet, and what happens? Jesus walks up to one and says, I want you. Jesus said to him, follow me and be my disciple. You're the exact kind of guy I'm looking for. Can you imagine the people absolutely shocked? He's asking, wait a minute. This rabbi, this religious leader who is seeking the cream of the crop to be his students has just asked a tax collector to join his posse? This can't be. And we're shocked only because we don't know the heart of Jesus because this is precisely what he does. Let's, let's read on. So Jesus asked Matthew. Matthew says yes, verse 29. Later, Levi held a banquet in his home with Jesus as the guest of honor. And many of Levi's fellow tax collectors, so the only people a tax collector can hang with is other tax collectors and other notorious criminals. So when it says, and other guests also ate with them, you can, get, you can bet those other guests were some seedy characters also. Verse 30. But the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law complained bitterly to Jesus' disciples. Why? Why in the world do you eat and drink with such scum? Wow. 
Jesus answered them, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they're righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. What an important encounter. Folks, we discover that Jesus is all about this thing called evangelism. It's his passion. He says, I'm a doctor. This is what I do. And he lays out for us in this encounter a pathway that we can follow. As we grow to love Christ more and more and more, as he becomes our everything, the desire, the natural, beautiful desire to bless others by helping them find the gold we've found is going to come into your heart. And as you become desirous to have the privilege of leading somebody to him, you say, how do I do it? Well, Jesus shows us how. He provides a pathway that's so helpful. So let let me go back and look at some of the verses we just read and provide some steps, if you will, some principles we can employ to follow the example of Christ. Here's the first. Recognize their value. Recognize their value. That is the value of spiritually lost people. Jesus saw them as utterly precious. The religious people of the day did not. Look at what they said, remember? The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they complained bitterly to Jesus' disciples. Why do you eat and drink with such scum? Do they see value in these people? Absolutely not. In fact, their moral... uh, Their moral poverty makes them repulsive to these religious people. They can't stand them. We Christians can be the same way. You know, a little confession here. Friday night, I took my daughter on a daddy-daughter day, my older daughter. Jorah was 15. We rode the train downtown. We saw a musical, went out to dinner. Great time. On our way home on the train, our perfect night was ruined by a train passenger who had clearly had too much to drink, and her vulgarity was epic. I mean, this woman could swear like nobody's business, and in that train, the alcohol loosened her tongue, and she belted it out. I mean, if you're going to swear, if you're going to curse, might as well flex that diaphragm and let it resound throughout the train, and that's what she did. She was quite skillful. I was actually impressed. I'm like, wow. Wow. She found a way to work the F-bomb into every sentence she said, you know. And I got my daughter here, you know. Jory and I were just rolling our eyes, shaking our heads. Thankfully, I'm glad that Jorah doesn't find any attraction in talking like that, but rather sees that as a very unbecoming way to go. Uh, but here's my confession to you. Uh, I was so annoyed with this woman that I rejoiced when she left the train, when her stop came along and she got out. And never once, never once, did the thought of how precious is this woman in the eyes of God. All I could see was her sin, and I could not see to the glory and to the very uh, love of God behind her. Do you know what? The Bible says the Bible says in John 3:16 that God so loved the whole world that he sent his son his one and only son to die on the cross that those who believe in him should have eternal life. The whole world including this woman 
God at that very moment was saying, yes, Jeff, she's got major issues, but I adore her. I sent Christ to die for her. And I, you know, I see it now. At the time, I didn't think of it. I should have, could have engaged with my daughter in a conversation that grieved her sin but celebrated her value. But my mind didn't go there. Didn't think about it until after the fact when I turned to annoying passages like this one that make me realize I'm more Pharisee than I care to admit. We need to come to a place where when we see people, neighbors, co-workers, whose sin is blinding, that we can see them through the eyes of Christ and recognize that those so very lost, they are valuable, in fact, precious to Almighty God. The people in Jesus' day, they didn't see it. Jesus saw it. Turned to a crowd of tax collectors, notorious criminals, and said, you people are utterly precious to the Almighty God. Let's go to the second point. So number two is this. We need to make it our mission, it being evangelism. We need to commit to a life mission of being God's ambassadors to each other. Do you see how that was embodied by Jesus? It was Jesus' life mission to reach these people. Jesus said, I'm like a doctor. Let me ask you this. Do doctors avoid Sick people? No. I mean, can you imagine a doctor that says, I don't want to get sick, so I'm going to stay away from them all. What good are you? A doctor runs to sick people and says, you are my calling. And Jesus says, that's what I am. I am a doctor of the soul. And so I don't avoid sick people. I run to them. They're precisely why I came. In fact, in this verse, uh, Jesus said, not only am I a doctor, he says, I have come. My mission on planet Earth is such as these. I have come for people who know they are sinners in in need of repentance. Jesus says, you know, the the more wicked the person, the more precisely the one I've come to pursue. Isn't that amazing? So Jesus was called friend of sinners because he said, I've come. My whole mission is to seek and save the lost. Is it possible to be a child of this Christ without embracing his life mission? I don't think so. If we're to be followers of Jesus, we've got to take his mission as our own, don't you think? And so if Jesus says, I live to help people come to him, we must say the same. You know, I, I, uh, I was a lifeguard. The, the old ring buoy was very familiar. When I say was, uh, for six summers... I worked as a lifeguard, and I was very serious about life-saving. In fact, I managed a swimming pool. I was the life-saving instructor that taught others how to be lifeguards. The concept of rescue became so ingrained in me that now, 25 years later, when I go to a swimming pool or a beach anywhere, I can't get it out of my mind. I'm scoping the sea. You know, is he struggling? I think, you know, and I'm coming up to the lifeguard stand. You okay? You doing all right? You're good, good, yeah. I just, it's who I am. And that's how we need to be in regards to drowning people, spiritually drowning people. We need to say, this is who I am. Not necessarily great at it, but my Lord was all about 
helping people far from God find him. And it is my life mission too. It's my identity. I see every moment, every day through the lens of my identity as an evangelist, as an ambassador of the good news of Christ to this world who needs it so much. All right, make it your mission number two. Number three is be attentive. This is really practical and also very helpful. I love this. As Jesus left the town, he saw a tax collector. A real unique word is translated he saw. The word saw is found 109 times in the first three Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels. Only once is the Greek word apteomai used And this is the only place that that word is used. It's not just to glance at, but it's to observe very closely, to recognize something. And when Jesus, when he saw that guy, he's like, ah, there, I see it. And you say, what does he see? I'm, I'm, I'm speculating here, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. I think that Matthew, the tax collector, well, he lived in Capernaum. Jesus had been preaching in Capernaum. And I believe that Levi had already listened to much of the teaching of Jesus and been mesmerized by the transformational truth Christ taught. You say, what makes you think that? Well, look at his response. Jesus says, you, be my disciple. He stands up. I will. Leaves everything to do it. This shows a guy who's already been moved, don't you think? He's already been stirred by this Christ. And I believe that Jesus had seen it. As he preached in Capernaum, he's like, you know, that's that tax collector in the back. But he's listening. And I see in his eyes a spiritual hunger. And Christ had been looking for this guy, or at least aware that the Father was up to something in this guy. Because the minute Jesus saw him, he's like, there he is. There he is. Folks, when we go through our day, we must be attentive to what God is doing in people all around us. You you need to know that the Lord has been in hot pursuit of every human being on planet Earth since the day they were born. And he's been wooing and drawing, and they may have been resisting and having nothing to do with it, but his heart is for everyone. And as a result, we should be looking and observing and You say, I never have any great evangelistic opportunities. That's because we're blind. Because they're all around us. If we would pray for eyes to see and a sensitivity to this, we would discover that every day there's somebody we rub shoulders with whom we can love and represent Christ to, engage in conversation with. We just need to be looking like Jesus looked, to be attentive Number four, we need to hang out with them. Remember this uh, simple question. This, you know, it's called a banquet, which sounds very sophisticated and proper. Don't let that fool you. Remember the participants of this banquet. Uh, They were the wild bunch. This was a party of very questionable characters. If you were invited to a party like that, would you go like Jesus did? Some of you are like, yeah, that's my kind of party. No, that's not what I'm talking about. If you're going with that attitude, uh, you're misrepresenting my point. We should say, you know what? I am very uncomfortable with the activity of a party of that sort. 
but I am very called to those type of people, and I want to be with them. I want to be a light in the darkness. Uh, this week I had lunch with a gentleman who's new to our church. He's only been attending for a month. He and I had had a conversation in the lobby. He said, hey, could we get together and do lunch? I said, yes. Yeah. So we had lunch at Naf, Naf, Naf Grill. Ooh. And uh, over lunch, he said to me, he goes, Jeff, why, why are we having lunch? I said, because you asked me. He goes, but I'm guessing you get asked by many people in a church this size. And you said yes to me. And I said, okay, you're right. I, I have to say no the majority of the time. He goes, then why did you say yes to me? I gave him a simple answer. I simply said, you know, I really bring it before the Holy Spirit and say, God, what are you calling me to do in this moment? And in your case, he told me, he wants me to have lunch with you. The thing that I didn't tell him, that he may be here and I'm telling him now, is this, that (laughs) when we had the conversation in the lobby, he says, this is all very new to me. Stumbled upon this church, both intrigued, a little freaked out, growing in my understanding of this Christian thing, could we have lunch? And I have been called by God to prioritize getting together with people who are seeking and searching for ripe fruit, if you will. And so I said, yes. Some people have said, if you want to have lunch with Jeff, you've got to pretend you're not a Christian and that you're really searching. You know? <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> Do you prioritize hanging out with people who are searching spiritually? Number five, cast vision. I just want to point to the content of Jesus' message as very visionary and positive. This is unbelievable. A tax collector, and Jesus says, you could be my disciple. You could be one of the apostles, one of the great, one of the authors of the New Testament, changing the world, you know. Sometimes evangelism is viewed as a very negative message. Remember old hellfire and brimstone preaching? You're going to hell! Admittedly, there are times when people need to wake up to their sinful condition, but more often than not, they need the good news emphasized. And the good news is that God does love them. And that though they are a sinner in big trouble, Christ has died for them and is inviting them into forgiveness and inviting them into an adopted relationship with God and a life of unbelievable joy and significance. And we need to tell people that vision cast to say, you know what, you are adored, adored by Jesus. He wants you He wants to forgive you. He wants to lead you into a life so beautiful. I just love to think of what your life could be in the hands of Jesus. And that vision-casting message can be so, so, so powerful. Let me end by uh, going back to my uh, life-saving illustration. Maybe you're impressed. You're like, wow, six summers as a lifeguard. Jeff was quite the hero, rescuing all these people from death. I'm a little embarrassed to admit, in all of my years of lifeguarding, I never saved a single person. Isn't that terrible? 
I mean, many lifeguards that I managed had quite dramatic rescues, saving drowning victims. My wife, for one summer, worked at my pool, and Jen, there was a little kid going down. Jen saved him in heroic fashion. Everybody else did, except me. Never once. If you will, I was the dry lifeguard. (laughs) In the chair, never in the water. Are you a dry Christian? Have you lived decades as a follower of Christ and never been in the water extending Christ and his rescue to others? You know, quite literally, I'm praying that you get wet. Wet with the waters of baptism. As somebody looks you in the eye and said, you know, as you know, I've found Jesus. And as you know, the Lord used you to help me find Jesus. And so, would you baptize me? Folks, to be asked that question and to plunge a dear friend into the water deep and hold them down so it really takes (laughs) and pull them up and hug them tight is one of the greatest joys ever. We're going to have a baptism right after the service in a few minutes out in the lobby. I would encourage you, if you can, to stand and watch and hear the stories. And imagine that one of the days you're going to be standing there. One of the days soon. Do a little vision casting here. You're going to be standing there with a friend who, to your shock, God has used you to help them find life eternal in the family of Jesus Christ. You ready to pray? Lord, we want to repent of not doing this well. I don't think there's anybody in this room who's done this well. And we want to. We love you, Lord. You You mean everything to us. And we want to be your ambassadors, your evangelists. Give us the courage, the tenacity, the love, to walk in the ways of Jesus. Tons on me as I pray that there are some who say, I'm not the evangelist. I need to be evangelized. I need a chance to receive this Christ and to become a Christian. As we pray, you can do that right now. If you want to have that defining reconciliation with your maker, in your heart silently pray with me. Jesus, I need you. I'm a sinner like Matthew, like Levi. I got some notorious junk in my past. Come to find out you love such as I? Please, I want to be your disciple. I want to be forgiven by the blood you shed on the cross. And I want to follow you. I want to be a Christian, both now and for all eternity. Please, bring me into your family. I trust you and what you did on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, if you're a brand new Christian having just prayed that prayer, or if you've been a Christian for a real long, long time, the truth is we all say we are what we are because of what Christ did for us on the cross. Apart from the cross, I have no life, no hope. But because of the cross... I am rich.
Jesus asked us to remember what he did on the cross through communion. And I'd like to invite the ushers to come forward distributing the communion elements. Take a cup. You'll see that there are actually two cups stacked on top of each other. One of them on the bottom has the bread. Take the cup and hold on to it, and I'll be back in a moment, and we'll take it together.